Hey, here's what we're going to do, church family. We are going to come back to tonight this, uh, uh, another aspect of what we looked at last week with God's sovereignty and really just a very practical application into our lives, pulling from, uh, pulling from what we've seen walking through the book of Daniel and, uh, and moving in there. We'll still come back to some church history, but as I uh, came away from last week and have processed through this week, I think there's a little bit more to, that is helpful, especially in light of uh, us coming to the end of the book of Daniel here in the next, the next week or two uh, as we come there. And so let me just remind you, all throughout the book of Daniel as we've walked through, there is a clear, if not the dominant theme of the book theologically, is the fact that our God is sovereign, period. He's sovereign over the course of history. He's sovereign over the affairs of the world. He's sovereign over our lives. Our God is sovereign, period. Uh, and we remember what sovereign means. Primarily, it refers to the fact that he is in, he, he's in control. He rules. He's on his throne. To be sovereign demands you have all knowledge. If there's something you don't know, then you, can't, you cannot be fully sovereign because that one piece of knowledge you don't know could usurp your authority. To be sovereign means you are all-powerful, omnipotent, because if there is some aspect of power, some aspect of ability to do that you lack, then you cannot actually exert sovereignty. Be mostly sovereign, kind of like Princess Bride, you can be mostly dead, uh, but you cannot be sovereign, period. To be sovereign, you have to have all knowledge, all power. Truth be told, to be truly sovereign, you must be all-present. Omnipresent. By all-present, what I mean is in every single space that there exists space, you must be in your entirety to enforce your sovereignty. God's not just big enough to fill every space. It's in every little single iota of space that exists. God is completely and totally in the entirety of His being in that space not only this, but to be sovereign, he has to be absolutely free to act. And we know from Scripture, you can see that in a passage like Isaiah chapter 40, when he says, who, who, did, God, who, who did God seek out to gain understanding? Who has he searched out for wisdom? God is not dependent upon someone else to act. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. Now, praise God, the God that we know, the God of Scripture, when we say he can do anything he wants, well, anything he wants is all in conformity to his character, which is all good. There is no shadiness, there is no darkness, there is no secret skeleton hiding in God's closet. God is sovereign, and we understand that in His sovereignty and the fact that this is who God is, and remember, God exists outside of creation. Yes, God is in heaven, but realize even heaven is a creation. God exists outside of heaven. God exists. God is beyond anything in the visible or invisible realm because he created both and holds them in the palm of his hands, which also means he holds time in his hand. Yet, our God who is sovereign, he acts in the timeline and daily experience of human history. God is outside of time, yet we relate to him inside of time. To God, past, present, and future are all present, but he relates to us in our present, and that's how we relate to him and will for all eternity. So, in his sovereignty, he creates. In his sovereignty, he sustains. We uphold creation by the word of his power. In his sovereignty, he governs. And by government, we mean that he, he works such in the universe and history so as to fulfill all of his plans and purposes. 
and no one can thwart it. We understand, and we've seen this especially heavy in the in the in the in chapter eleven of Daniel, that his sovereignty means his word will come to a pa- has come to pass. He'll accomplish his will, um, and so that brings us to the reality of God's will. We understand that in Scripture, when we speak about God's will, parts of God's will, most of God's will is extremely spelled out in Scripture, and we'll come back to that here in just a second. There are some aspects of God's will that that are hidden. And by hidden, I mean uh, there, there was no verse in the Bible when I was praying about who to marry that said, Wes, you should marry Bethany when you're 26 years old. It was not there. There's no verse. You can scour cover to cover. It's not there. And you can use all sorts of weird uh, Bible code metrics and you still won't get it. So it's not there. Some things are not fully written out. Um, we know that in one sense, there's aspects when we use the word will of God that will not fail to come to pass. It is God's will to sanctify every child who, of His in Christ. You and I are going to be fully sanctified. Even if, it's go, even if it's kicking and screaming, it's going to happen. At the same time, we understand when we talk about God's will in terms of His desire, well, His desire is that none should perish, but some will perish because of their own personal choice that God and His sovereignty has given them to make. Wow, someone's having some fun out there. Uh, that's, yeah, okay, I got to re, refocus here. Um, we understand that when it, comes to, when it comes to God's will in time, there are some things that God causes. It happens directly by His causation. And there are some things that God allows, meaning He allows our choices to cause it to happen or not happen. And the remarkable thing for you and I is that right there, if we try to I could spend the rest of the night on that right there, and we would all be scratching our head at the end and not be able to understand it at all. Yet all of that is true, and God is still completely sovereign. He's still in control, which means when we make choices, right or wrong, that have real consequences in this world, and by we, I mean us individually in this room. I also mean our governing leaders. I mean school boards. I mean fill in the gap, what seems like chaos and things run amok to us, God is still sovereign. Doesn't mean He approves of our decisions. And that's a critical distinction. God being sovereign does not mean He approves of everything that happens. But it does mean no matter what happens, God is in fact in control and will not be stopped. So having said all that, here's the real. So last week, my, my ultimate aim was to simply say, if when we really understand God is sovereign, we also have to understand that we still have a responsibility to make decisions and our decisions matter. Real simple. God being sovereign does not mean that somehow everything is fatalistic and there's no reason to make a decision. Just, just sit back and be the robot God made you to be. God didn't make you to be a robot. Because he's not a robot and he made us in his image, not the image of a robot. Our decisions matter and God calls us to make decisions. So the next practical question is, how do I make a decision if God is sovereign? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. How do you make a decision in light of God's sovereignty? So uh, I shared a little bit of this last week, but I'll come back to, I'll come back to this and we'll kind of weave this theme throughout, throughout the deal. You and I have to make decisions. 
And as believers, those saved by grace through faith, a personal response of repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have to make decisions. And in theory, we're supposed to make decisions that honor God. So we seek the Lord's counsel on decisions. So here I am, uh, a senior in college. At the beginning of my, right before my senior year, I spent the summer in Ukraine. And like a great stereotypical college testimony, uh, I met a girl who was on the trip. And we clicked and hit it off. And we kept in touch a little bit afterwards. And then things got a little weird and we didn't keep in touch. And then later on that semester, we got back in touch. And then I don't remember what happened, but we weren't in touch. And then back in February-ish, early March, we got back in touch and decided to start dating. And over the course of dating, as I am still remember the moment, praying, Lord, it's your will, is your will that, you know, I don't, I don't want to be in any relationship that's not of you, that's not headed towards marriage. I don't want to dishonor you with, with my time. And so I need, is it, do you have me marry this person? And this, this moment of, of peace just flooding and filling my heart. And you don't know that girl at all because that's not Bethany and I didn't marry her. <laughs> How do we discern the voice of the Lord when we have the ability to make decisions and God is sovereign. And here's why this matters to me so much to give to you. Because, And I mentioned this last week, and I'll mention it one more time, and then we'll move through uh, stuff I didn't talk about last week. I think there are corners that we can back ourselves into that are dangerous when it comes to God's sovereignty that have huge implications for the way you live your life from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. Or maybe I should flip that more biblically, from the moment you go to bed to the moment you wake up, since Scripture likes to talk about evening then morning. We either back into this corner where the term sovereignty and all that that means around God being sovereign, it just is really scary to us because of maybe things we've heard or ways we've seen it twisted, and, and it just is kind of this scary thing. And so we back into this corner where we just, we just don't want to think about it or know about it. And the problem with that is when you back into that corner, you're going to live a very fearful life as a Christian because you're uncertain of if your God is ultimately in control. There's another corner you can back into. It's a corner, I would call it the ignorant corner, where we, we hear this idea that God is sovereign. God's in control. And so because God's in control, that just means I blame everything good or bad on God. Now, not because I'm driven by some kind of theological system or having thought a lot about it. No, it's just God's in control. So this happened, therefore, it must be God's will. Well, I like this girl. I asked to, to date this girl. She said, yes, must be God's will. This job opened up. It's got a good salary. I didn't see a blood red moon. Must be God's will. So and so took a really dumb dare and jumped off a cliff. Must be God's will. This corner of ignorance where all of a sudden we just kind of use God as the scapegoat for anything that happens. Or there's the corner, um, I might call it the corner of misunderstanding where it's not so much that we're just kind of ignorant and we use it to kind of throw stuff on, but we go, well, God is sovereign and, and, and our understanding of his sovereignty is such that everything is just really a Christian form of fatalism. There's no choice. Our choices really don't matter because God's already determined it. Our choices, and, and if you play that thinking out logically, and the reason I bring that up is because there are some sources of Christian theology that go that direction, and I just respectfully disagree. If you play that kind of thinking out, well, God, you made me this way. In the way I'm made, I struggle with this temptation. It's your will for me to sin. 
Because if you didn't want me to struggle with that, you wouldn't have made me the way you made me. I mean, there's all sorts of ways it gets twisted. So there's these danger zones where we can pull into these extremes of corners. So it's important, since you and I do live in a world where every day we have to make decisions, that we're not afraid or misunderstanding or ignorant of God's sovereignty, but we know in light of God's sovereignty, how do we go about making decisions? How do we do that? And by the way, all of us have to do that. I know some of you are young in this room and you still have a lot of big decisions ahead of you. Some of you may be older and go, I don't have that many big decisions ahead of you. The truth is, none of us know what tomorrow brings and we still all have to make decisions. So how do we make decisions? One, and I'm gonna mention a lot of scripture references from this point on, so I'll say them slowly, but some I'll quote, some I'll turn to. Uh, You feel free to write them down or um, uh, turn with me, but just know some of them I'll, I'll read, some of them I won't. First, here's in light of a sovereign God, when we understand that God is sovereign, He knows all things, He has all power, He's all present, He's all good, which means He's all loving, He's, he's totally free to act, that He is a sovereign God who's in control, then the first place we start is from a posture of humility. The first place we start before we even come to a decision is a posture of humility. This is perfectly illustrated for, for all of us in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we see Isaiah, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of God's robe filling the temple. Uh, Seraphim stood above him, each with six wings, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. The foundations of the thresholds trembled. And then I said, woe is me, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. The first place we have to start is in a posture of absolute humility, a posture of humility that says, God, you are God, and I am not. Now, that's what's going on with Isaiah, and we see that play out in elsewhere in Scripture. Isaiah, all of a sudden, the clouds roll back, and he sees God in a way few people have ever gazed, and he very quickly goes, it's not about me. But we don't stop with, it's not about me. It's all about God. And so the decisions I make, when we talk about a posture of humility, we start with, are the decisions that I make, is my aim, is my will focused on living a life that is for the glory of God and not for the glory and fulfillment of self? That is, interestingly enough, when I think back to as, as as a young believer at 13, when I first started to get in the Word and read my Bible on, on a, a personal level with the Lord on a relatively daily basis, I read through the book of Hebrews. And the first real truth that, that in a real personal way the Holy Spirit taught me as I read through Hebrews is my life was not for me, it's for God's glory. That is foundational to you and I as a believer. When it comes to the decisions we make in my will in my will and in the core of my being, is it about me and my glory? Is it about my preferences? Is it about my wants? Or is it about the Lord's glory? Now, that right there can give us plenty of stuff to just start checking our hearts with. And I'll be facetious and pick a stereotypical pastor church example. To the church that is up in arms because they're building a, they're building a new sanctuary and there's arguments over what color the dumb carpet should be. Jesus' blood is red. It better be red. Red is really obnoxious. It better be blue like, like the water that cleanses us. It better, it better be white, robes off, you, you name it. All of a sudden, here's all this arguing and bickering over what color the carpet's going to be 
Where's the glory of God in that? We're going to be divided as a church over the carpet color. Not divided over the church, whether or not the pastor actually preached God's word. Not divided over a church on whether or not the word is inerrant. And whether, we're going to divide whether we're the carpet. I got news for you, church family. God doesn't care what color the carpet is. God made all the colors. And there's some in heaven that we don't know. How's that for you? No, what would glorify God would be for us to come together and go, you know, when it comes to this, what is the most godly use of the money he's provided so we don't get extravagant on carpet to put something in that's not going to be tacky and distracting, but also will, be, will also last so we're not having to rip it out and, and spend more money on carpet in two years? That'd be a God-glorifying decision because we're trying to steward the resources he's given us Oh, and you know what? When we put those together, we only got one option, church teal. All right, there you go. What is the glory of God? You see Isaiah, the realization is the glory. Now, here's the other thing. When you and I focus on the glory of God, here's going to be what happens. Just like Isaiah, sin is going to get exposed. So making decisions, we focus, it's going to be a posture of humility. When we're in that posture of humility, it means we're focused on the glory of God. And when we focus on God's glory, that's the, you, you want to know the place where all of a sudden sin gets exposed? It's pretty easy to see my sin exposed when I'm in the glory of God. And if there is sin in our lives, we need to be quick and repenting. Is there anything, so just put this right here now. We've got decisions we've got to make. Is there anything currently in our lives that we're already aware of that we need to confess? Patterns of sin, patterns of idolatry, things we know the Holy Spirit has been convicting us about slowly, steadily. By the way, the Holy Spirit doesn't just convict through um, guillotine moments. Some of us think the Holy Spirit only convicts when it's like, boom, the pastor's sermon just pierced me and I'm weeping at the altar. The Holy Spirit convicts when you read a verse and you hear him quietly whisper and go, you know you're out of a line there. I, I struggled in junior high with a massive eating disorder. And there was a very big moment where God really had to pull some things out and address it. But the truth is, if I go back for the year prior, there were all sorts of small moments where God whispered to my heart, both in Bible study with peers, privately in my time with the Word, hearing sermons, where God whispered, Wes, you know this is wrong. Is there any sin in our lives that the Spirit's been convicting us that we need to confess? And by the way, just remember, as believers, when we ask for forgiveness for sin, we use that, use that mean. It's not because we haven't already been forgiven. Remember, our place as believers, God's already forgiven you and me of every sin that we ever have committed, are currently committing, and will commit. All of them have already been forgiven and dealt with in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you and I can't have a relationship with God. What we're doing is in light of that conviction, we're recognizing we're seated at the table of God. We're supposed to behold His glory, looking in, at His wonderful face and fellowship, but we've gotten distracted by sin running around on the floor. So what we're doing is turning back, not to a relationship. We're already seated in the relationship. We're turning back to fellowship. Right? You can be in relationship with someone and have bad fellowship. Once you come to faith in Christ, you're forever in relationship with God. Can't lose it. But in that relationship with Christ, we get distracted. There's a confessing of sin to turn back. And by the way, church family, overlooked and unconfessed sin does not go away. Time does not heal the wounds of unacknowledged sin. Because God does not forget whatever a man sows, he will reap 
Why? Because God will not be mocked. Galatians chapter 6, Ephesians 5. Don't take part in the deeds of darkness because whatever is done in darkness will be exposed to the light. Sometimes there's sin. We go, well, I'm not, yeah, I did those things. That was sin. But I don't want to acknowledge it and we're just going to act like it didn't happen and keep on. God is going to still deal with you on that. Don't think we can sweep sin under the carpet. So we've got to confess. A posture of humility means we focus on the glory of God. We repent of any no sin. It means in doing this, we surrender to the will of God. Now look, look what happens in here, here in Isaiah. Isaiah 6, he makes this confession. He, he confesses his sin. Woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. Then God deals with him. Then a seraphim flew to me with a burning coal. Uh, in his hand, taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Here's relationship with God. Then listen. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So here's Isaiah. He's in a posture of humility. He sees the glory of God. He's focused on the glory of God. He's repented, confessed his sin. What's the next thing? He hears the word of the Lord. And what's his response? Here am I send me. And you notice it's not here I am. Here I am would imply, hey, I'm over here, God, pay attention to me. God knows where he's at. And so does Isaiah. The response is not here I am, look at me. The response is here am I, I surrender. Your will, God, is to send someone. My only response focused on your glory, repenting of my sin, is to surrender to your will, is the posture of our heart, one which desires the will of God. Is it one which does or one which desires the will of self? And by the way, just as we do this, we need to be aware of the kind of expectations and desires that we live with. Now, let me tell you why. Let's go back to Wes's story of the marriage that didn't happen. How did I come to a place where I was spending regular time alone with the Lord in prayer and in his word? faithfully serving the Lord in ministry. I was an RA. You want to talk about 24-7 ministry? An RA at a Christian school is 24-7 ministry. How did I come to a place where I missed the Lord's voice so clearly and the consequences of which were to, to utterly break a godly young woman's heart for something she didn't ask? She didn't ask for a guy to like her and promise to marry her because it was God's will and then break up with her. She didn't ask for that. It's on me. In the time that would come after as God would put me in a place to look back, here's what I didn't realize. I came to college with certain expectations and desires. I came to college under the guise of College is where I'm going to meet my really close, lifelong friends. Says where in God's Word? Maybe. Maybe not. Doesn't say that in God's Word, that college is where you'll meet your lifelong friends. I came to college with this expectation that I would follow the Lord like my parents and my grandparents follow the Lord, all of whom got married in college, all of whom met their spouse in college. I got news for you. There's no verse in this book that says God is going to have you meet your spouse in college. It's not there. But I did not realize that I came to college with really, truly an expectation that somewhere in those four years, I was going to meet my spouse. 
because after college, it was going to get whatever left of training is needed and ship out to go overseas where God was going to have me as a missionary till I died some martyr's death. See, I didn't just have expectations for my love life. I had expectations for how I understood even God's call to ministry in my life. I took what God had clearly told me, and then I added a couple extra verses, just like my hero, Jim Elliott, who met his wife in college and got married right after college, or not right after, technically, several years later, to go off overseas to die as a martyr. So here's what I'm saying, church family. All of us, there is nothing wrong. Expectations and desires in and of themselves, we all have them. Just part of being human. The problem is when we don't acknowledge them because then they start to drive us in ways that we don't realize. All of a sudden, why am I feeling this intense anxiety and pressure to figure out whom I'm going to marry my senior year of college? Because, Dad Gummit, I've got the expectation I'm supposed to be married by the end of college. Instead of looking up and going, what if that's not what God's plan for me is? What if God's plan for my life is not only not to bring that person in college, but what if God's plan for my life is, not, is to take me to a place I'd never thought I'd be, a suburban Bible Belt church as a youth pastor who for three years was unencumbered by any other responsibility than to minister to those students and their parents because I was single. What if it wasn't just God getting me ready for something? What if there was something God actually wanted to do through my life that demanded a season of singleness but I wasn't even aware or open to even hearing the Lord speak because I had my expectations. So my simple point is this. I'm not asking you to do some hardcore self-analyzation. I think it would have been just as simple. If I had just gone before the Lord and said, Lord, do I have any expectations that are out of line? The Holy Spirit would do what the Holy Spirit does and gone, bong, right here. The same spot I've been trying to point out to you for years, Wes. Glad you're paying attention now. And then what do you do with that? Lord, here's what I want. And as your son, you give me the right to come before your throne and to ask for the desires on my heart. But here's what I do. Here's what I want. Here's what I desire. Into your sovereign, almighty, loving hands I place it. And now surrender because of your glory, who you are, your greatness. And like you, Lord, Pray over that desire, not my will, but yours be done. And where I need to be changed, Lord, change me. We've got to be aware. Part of surrendering to the will of God is being aware and, and not, not having expectations or desires, but being willing to submit and surrender those expectations and desires to his hands. Because whether it's a, 20, a early 20-year-old kid trying to figure out who he's going to marry, or whether it's figuring out when to retire, whether it's figuring out what to do with money in retirement, I don't know what the decision is, but every one of us in this room, you better believe for your life you have expectations you're aware of, and you have expectations you're not aware of. And part of walking with the Lord is to allow the Lord to expose where there's problems and to lay those expectations and dreams and desires down to his will. Psalm 119, verse 45, by the way, this is, is a hard thing, but it's also where freedom is found. Psalm 119, verse 40, uh, 119, 
verse 15. Sorry, 119, verse 45. There's only 100 some odd verses in Psalm 119, forgive me. Um, and I will, so I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I will walk at liberty. I will walk in freedom for I seek your precepts. If you and I want to know freedom, it's found in surrendering to the will of God, not found in hanging on to our expectations, desires, and then get, getting frustrated at why God won't fulfill his will in our name. Our job is not to get God to conform to our will. Our will is to lay our will down to him and be conformed to his will. And when we do this, ultimately what this is doing is it recognizes the authority of God. What did Jesus say is the greatest commandment in all of Scripture? This, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and we might be, and I've done it even too, younger, heart, soul, mind, and strength with all your emotions, with all your intellect, with all your, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's what it's trying to say is love the Lord with the entirety of your being. There's not a single aspect of what makes you, you, that you are not to love the Lord with in every way. And by the way, remember what love is. That's agape. Love is not positive emotion of affection towards God. Let me get myself to where I feel positively towards God. Love is a verb. Love is the act of sacrificing of myself for another's good, or in the case of God, for God's glory. That's what love is. Love is to actively sacrifice of myself for the glory of God, for the will of God. So to love the Lord God with all of my being is to recognize his authority over the entirety of my life. Put another way, your life is not your own, nor is mine. I got asked the question the other night, where will you be in, where do you think you'll be in 10 years? And depending on how that question is meant, the ultimate answer is, well, I hope where I am is where God wants me. You know, well, that's a, that's a cheesecake answer. no. Not if you mean, where do I truly see myself in 10 years? I mean, I hope that I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I hope that I'm a better pal. I hope that I've grown and I hope that I love God. I mean, there's character things I could give you of where I hope I am in 10 years. But as far as where am I? Am I the pastor of First Baptist Pflugerville? Am I? That's not for me to decide. That's God's business. My job is to, to focus on his glory, to repent of my sin, to surrender to his will, to recognize his authority because I am bowed as a result of who he is. I am bowed and living my life in a posture of humility. Now that's the starting point because how do we make decisions? So this is really the way I've written the question out. How do I make a decision considering the sovereignty of God in a posture of humility to the Lord at his written word? So in a posture of humility to the Lord in a relationship at his written word, here's the reality. How do I make a decision in light of the sovereignty of God? Well, we do what the word says to do. And for many of us, for many of us, the reason we, we, we make mistakes and decisions with God is because somewhere there's our will is reigning and not surrendered to his will. But then beyond that, the place that would, would naturally, most naturally expose that and inform us of how to respond that most of us are negligent of is, how do, I, how do I know what God's will is? What his word says? 
what his word says. Listen to listen to First Thessalonians. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You're being made more like Christ, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So let's stop right there. I've got a decision to make. I've been invited. Should I go see this movie? Yes or no? Is it a movie that would cause you to run in and indulge sexual morality? If it is, then I got news for it. I can already tell you what God's will is. No. Flee. Oh, I've been invited. I've been invited to this, this really cool, this really cool party to get together of people. Is it, is it a party that's gonna tempt you and take you into sexual immorality? Mm, good chance. There's gonna be a lot of scantily clad people, and there might be, might be, uh, might be some some liquor around. Great. Tell you what God's will is. No. I got news for you. I don't even have to pray about telling you what God's will is. It's just right there in his word. Pastor, man, I, I've, I've met this person. They're great. They really, mm, they, they're awesome. They're, they're fun. They're exciting. Uh, we get along really well. There's all these things. And I, I'm actually going to ask you, do they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? No, I'm, they don't. All right, I'm going to already tell you it's not God's will. I don't have to do any more praying or thinking about it. You say, well, I'm not totally sure. We've just, we've just, we just had one time of talking. Okay, great. Well, then on one of your first dates, you should pretty quickly figure out if they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the word, God gives us all sorts of things. Should I take this job? Should I buy this house? Well, how does taking that job or buying that house impact the church community that God's called you to be a part of? Well, God's called me to be a part of this church but I'm going to move my family an hour and a half away and then we're not going to be a part of the church anymore. Look, God may be calling you to move an hour and a half away, in which case he's probably calling you to take your, your spiritual gifts and family to another local community of believers. But it's a question we don't take into account often. There's a, there's a great little book on how to discern. It's called How to Discern the Will of God Without Liver... Li, li, I can't even give you the whole title because it's designed to be goofy, but it's how to discern the will of God. And it talks about how do you process through the decision of where to take a job. And it gives, you know, there's factors you're going to consider. Can I afford that house? Is there wide stewardship? Is that job, does it, does, is it a job that would put me in any kind of ethical violations that would violate what God's called me to do? Is it a job that would provide for my family? Is it, you know, there's all these different questions that we ask ourselves too. And it said, but oftentimes we forget to ask ourselves, are there local churches that I can plug into? We look at the school district, but we don't look at the churches. Yet God has called every one of us in Christ to be an active, vibrant part of a local church. God has literally gifted every one of us in this room in Christ with spiritual gifts, the purpose of which are to build up the body, not ourselves. And it says that if any one of us doesn't use those gifts, it's like, it's like a cog missing in the crank. It won't work, or certainly not as well as God intends and desires for it to work. You know, should, I'm trying to make decisions. Should, should, our, should our kids be in this activity or this activity? Well, how does that fit with the call to disciple your kids based on what God tells you in the Word and to love Jesus and be faithful to the body of Christ? Does it damage that? Is it neutral? Does it encourage it? 
Ultimately, here's the, the word has so much. I'm trying to give just a, a wide variety of different things that are in the word. The word has so much to tell us about what God's will is and what we do. I mean, I always make an arbitrary number up, but I always put it high. Just be, I can't tell you the exact percentage, but let's just call it 80, 90% of God's will for our lives is right there in the word. That has to inform our daily decisions. Ooh, I think God's will is that I God's will is that I take this job. God's, God wants me to have this job. This is my dream job. Wait a minute, I'm going through your resume. There's some things in your resume that aren't true. Well, but but well, well, well. it's never God's will for you to twist the truth and lie as a believer. That's great, it's your dream job. If God wants you to have it, apply for it. And if God wants you to have it, you'll get there. God doesn't want you to have it, then lay down your dream. But you don't lie on your resume. Again, I can go on example after example. The point is, we do what the Word says to do. Not only do we do what the Word says to do, but we believe God is who His Word says He is. And this is just as key, if not maybe even more vital, when it comes to us making decisions. Uh, We believe God is who He says He is, and daily we respond to who He is how he is at what he says. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter six. Be a familiar passage to most of you in the room. Listen to what it says. Jesus speaking. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body, nor is what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith." Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough care for itself. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Then just a few short verses later. Keep on asking and it will be given. Keep on seeking, you will find. Keep on knocking and it will be opened to you. What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil know how to get good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Psalm 139 speaks about where can I flee from your presence, God? Where can I get away from your knowledge? Where can I pull away from from your will, from what you're up to? But nowhere, I can go nowhere for God, you fearfully and wonderfully knit me. And those are beautiful Hebrew words that speak to an unbelievable microscopic artistic uh, artistry of a carpenter making and fashioning something not in some generalized way that's somewhat acceptable, but making something very specific and very precise just the way he wants it. He says, you know, the days that you've ordained for me, there's a plan for my life. Now think about how many of us live our life, pick an area, 
written with worry. One, an express violation of what God says not to do. But two, in absolute denial, do you see how Jesus bases the command not to worry? It's based on the character of who God is. Now, I'm saying this as a worrier. I mean, I'm, I'm being legit. If there, Some people are, you know, some firstborn male children are prone to be the daredevil and do everything stupid you can imagine. That was not me. I was the opposite of that. In my friend group in high school, I was the one who kept them from doing the dumb things. I'm prone to be a worrier. And you and I live in a world where there's gonna be worries that pop into our minds. The issue is not whether the worry or concern comes to mind. It's what we do with it. And this is a daily thing, church family. This is part of daily decision-making. Today, am I going to allow my mind to be driven by all the fears of what could be tomorrow? Or today, will I take these worries and place them in the hands of God and pray through them accordingly based on what they are in light of Scripture? I remember one time opening up uh, early in the Beth and I's marriage, opening up, here was the apartment renewal. Wow, the rent had jumped massively. And I remember getting really, really worried and going, oh my goodness, and how are we? And I just remembered, wait, stop. Before I, at some point, I'm gonna have to crunch the numbers. That's not, there's no issue crunching the numbers. It's part of what you gotta do. It's kind of like God certainly intends to feed us every day, but he didn't say he would do all the work for you. God, I'm sitting here. Where's my food? You said not to worry. I said not to worry. I didn't say don't get up in the kitchen and go make yourself your own sandwich. In my name for my glory. So I'm, you're gonna have to crunch number, but, but before I could just sense myself going there, I said, Lord, I'm just gonna stop. You love us. You've called us here. You know the constraints of our money. So Lord, I'm asking that you provide a way and make clear what we need to do. And I'm gonna let this laying this down and surrender to you be the foundation of how I respond to this and not fear and worry that somehow it all sits on my shoulders as if I'm sovereign because I'm not. The reality is, church family, you and I live in unbelievably fearful times. There is less and less ability to have any certainty that you once thought you had in years past about tomorrow. I could convince all of us with the right information that the Lord's returning any time in the next decade. He might be. He might not be. The only matter is we're living in wild times. If I'm honest, parenting terrifies me. Now, some of y'all will laugh and go, oh, we've been there. But part of why it terrifies me is look at the world I'm having to raise my kids in. I'm having to think through when Jesse comes up with a name for a stuffed animal that we make sure to use the right pronouns with that name just so we don't set her up for danger later on down the road because of the crazy world we live in. Right now, she can only watch four shows, and three of them are from my childhood. <laughs> Praise the Lord for streaming services. Parenting terrifies me. I cannot explain to you how much being a parent terrifies me. 
But I can either be eaten up by that terror or I can daily, even multiple times a day, find a way to come before the Lord and take that terror and go, God, but for such a time as this, you caused me to live and you did not, my kids aren't by my own hand. I'm gonna say for a while, well, you got out of part, but guess what? God's the only one who can make life life. God's entrusted me with these kids. We can go on into anything with worry, with fear that is there. We are gonna face fearful, worrying, trying times. We're gonna face times where you are gonna face real sorrow, real pain, real difficulties, where you're gonna be hit with enough hard stuff that you do not even know how to pray. Listen to this other passage of Scripture. In the same way, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is, and He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We're going to come to moments where we literally do not know what to pray. And we're going to have a choice to believe what all of our fear and feelings and everything wants to tell us about the situation or to come back in spite of those, and some of those may be legit, for martyrs that were arrested and placed in the Tower of London and knew they were gonna be executed the next day, the feeling of fright that I'm about to go through the experience of bodily death is legit because they were and they did. But they had a choice in the midst of that to succumb to the fear or to press into the character of God. The same choice you and I have, the same choice we have to go, Lord, I am so weighed down by this, I really don't have a clue what to pray. But I know you are God and you're on your throne and you're not surprised by what I am facing. I know that you have all the power. You could change it, you may not, but you have all the power. I know you know you know when you're aware, not only that, but Jesus, it says that in your experience of humanity, you have experienced everything I could ever experience as a human. You know personally what I am feeling and what I am facing. I know you are all present. I may not feel you near me and I may not feel you in me at this moment. I'm clinging to the blood of the lamb because you're my only hope. And I may not feel you because right now what I feel is a sorrow that I don't even know how to, but, but I know you're here because your word tells me you're here. And I don't know what to pray, so I'm just coming before you, and I'm just trusting that Holy Spirit, you're gonna pray what needs to be prayed perfectly for God to move in my life because that's, you're my only hope. You want great news? You won't be disappointed in what you just prayed. Not only that, listen to this, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be, be the firstborn among many brethren. And he also predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I've got great news, church family. The work that God started in our lives at the moment, really truth be before the moment of salvation, but from the moment of salvation on, it does not matter what circumstances come, he will finish it. And he will finish it. Think about God's promise to the disciples. Disciples, you're, you've only, you're a bunch of ragtag guys from Galilee. 
You never stood before anybody famous or intellectual. You're a bunch of bums, backwater bums. And I'm going to send you to countries you've never dreamed, to stand in front of kings that you can't imagine. But don't be afraid. I'll give you the words in that moment. We have a choice to reckon upon the word of God. We have a choice. Though I am with you always, we have a choice in these moments. So let me come back then for the sake of the example. Here's the real truth behind what was going on with uh, my senior year of college. It's not just as simple as I met a girl and then, and here's the real reality. When I look at my life and you back up the time dial for about two years, there's two major things that were going on in my life that I was living so fast and so hurriedly that I wasn't aware of one of them and actively probably suppressing it. And the other, I just, it was, it was there plain as day to see. I just was overlooking it. One, I experienced an unbelievable amount of grief and pain in college from death. By the time I was a junior, I had been to 15 funerals for family or family of friends or guys IRA'd for in two, in two years, two and a half years of college. It, it took quite a few weddings officiating before my wedding count of weddings attended has surpassed my funeral attended count. Some of those were brutally traumatic deaths like the murder of my grandmother right up the road from where I was going to school. Reality is, they'll tell you, when you're dealing with a murder, you, you don't actually start any form of grief process for, for, the, for about two years. You're just in shock. Your body's, you're, you're just in shock. What I couldn't see was part of the deal was I had taken some deep pain, trauma from grief, And it was easy to ignore that pain and the need for comfort and healing by busying myself with ministry and school. I graduated in four years, never taking summer school. And if it, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm not saying this to put, I'm telling you this is how dumb I am. I pushed myself so hard. I, I was two one hundredths. And it's absurd that they even carried out to that far, but I'm two one hundredths from a flawless 4.0 for my undergrad because DBU is a nine-point grade scale and not a four-point, so an A- minus is not a 4.0, and I made two 93.94s. What class, whatever. My point is I pushed myself hard, and I couldn't see that some of the deep longing in my heart was a lot of grief that I had suppressed. Coupled with that, as I came to my senior year, like most people facing their senior year in change, there's a lot of fearful things. What's next? Okay, I'm going to seminary. What's, what's the program in seminary? How am I going to afford to pay? I don't want to be one of these lame millennials who mooches off mom and dad. I'm going to find a way. I got to, I got to, you know, that's, that is the firstborn part of me. And what I couldn't see that was really, truly underneath the surface, it's not that I misheard God about who to marry. It's that long before I was ever praying that, I had expectations that I was running to over the Lord in the midst of the pain of my grief. And not only that, but I actively was living my life as if everything depended upon me because at the heart of it, I was not fully trusting the Lord with my steps. And what blew up 
with the girl that I didn't marry was a volcano, the source of which was a lack of believing God is who he says he is. On my best days, when I feel it and can shout a hearty amen, and on my worst days, when I am, in, I am on the ground in tears trying to figure out which way is up, my circumstance don't change who he is. And because he's sovereign and what he says is true, I can confidently be both places and meet him there. And he is the same. So when we come to how do we make decisions about the will of God in a posture of humility to the Lord at his written word, it means we do what he says we're supposed to do as he says it. It also means we trust who he says he is. And if you go, well, this is who he says he is, but I'm having a tough time with that today, pastor. Can I give you some great counsel? Be like the guy who walked up to, Joe, to, to Jesus and said, Jesus, heal my daughter. And he said, well, this takes faith. And he said, well, fix my unbelief. Help my unbelief. It's the most, one of the most honest people that shows up in all Scripture. Lord, you're saying I got I to gotta have Help my unbelief. Lord, I'm struggling. In your grace, sustain me. You know the ultimate irony, and I, this is taking a little bit of a turn I didn't intend, but here as we wrap up. The ultimate irony of Job. Job suffers, suffers brutally because he is righteous. Job struggles honestly and struggles with trying to wrap his head around, why has this happened in my righteous life with who I know God to be? He struggles. And you want to know the ultimate thing about the book of Job? As if you pay real clear attention to the language that is used, it says, and out of the whirlwind, God answered Job. It says about his three buddies who were all confident about their twisting of God's character, they need to offer sacrifices of repentance because they are out of alignment with me. God rebuked the friends. He answered Job. He didn't answer every one of Job's questions. Job didn't walk away from the whirlwind understanding why. God didn't tell him. But he did walk away understanding God to a depth that I promise some of us have read that passage and went, man, I would love to have had that experience with the Lord. My feelings and my worries do not get to dictate who God is and how he relates to me and others. Culture's opinions do not get to dictate who God is and how he relates to me and others. Part of making decisions in light of God's will is being in a posture of humility, being in submission to his word. And if any way we examine our lives or the Holy Spirit exposes things in our lives and we see something that is outside the bounds of the written word, then we go back to that posture of humility and humble ourselves before God by confessing whatever it is. I shared that example with you last week, I believe. Just the other day in my time with the Lord, I, I'm, I'm kind of predisposed. I'm the firstborn perfectionist. If, I don't, if I'm not got my A-plus game, then, then God must be disappointed in me. That's, that's just a disposition in my life. Doesn't mean it rules me. All of us have dispositions. 
just the disposition, how I'm wired. And it's easy for me in moments where I'm tired, and I got news for you, I live most of my life tired presently. By the way, uh, just so y'all know, so you can pray for us, um, taking us totally by surprise this week, it has become potty training week at the house. So it is a crazy time to be alive in the Wilkinson house right now. The staff, uh, Bethany caught FaceTime me in the middle of staff me. I thought something either horribly wrong has happened or something major has happened because she knows we're in staff meeting. So I answered and it was Jesse going, I pooped in my potty. I'm so happy. <laughs> and I said, and I'm sure all the staff guys are so delighted to share that with you. Share, you know. Here's my point. When I'm tired, it is easy to slide back into those dispositions and fears. And yet, here's this passage in Scripture that tells me the basis of my relationship with the Lord is His everlasting loving kindness. Here's this passage in Scripture that tells me His mercies are new every morning, great is His faithfulness. Here's this, I have to make a choice daily. Will I choose to believe that He is and relate to Him on the basis of what I feel, what I worry, what I'm scared of, or by the basis of what His Word says? Now, that's only half of what I prepared for tonight. We're going to stop. We'll pick up with the other half next week. But... uh, this is, this is important that we understand our God is sovereign. If, if hard times are ahead of us, church family, if we are not rock solid in our belief that God is sovereign, we will fall. I'm just, that's just a fact. So I want us to be clear on what God's sovereignty is, but then especially, here's the other side. As of today, it's not the end yet which means you and I got to make decisions that somehow are in line and under his sovereignty. And the reality is, if we really understand his sovereignty, it should lead us to make courageous, emboldened decisions of life, not walk around fearfully in one of these corners of misunderstanding what it means. So simple put this week, how do we make decisions in light of his sovereignty? We humble ourselves in posture and we do it according to his word. And that's where we pick up next week. Love you, church family. We'll see you Sunday as we go back in the book of Daniel. And uh, what I thought was going to be the last Sunday, but it may be the second to last. So you'll just have to find out on Sunday when we get here. Uh, We'll see you, church family.